Well, uh, my friends, would you turn to Psalm 39? Psalm 39. I don't know if it's true for you. I'm going to assume that it is because I think it's part of our human nature that there are oftentimes there are questions that just really echo around, kind of bounce around in your soul. Um, A lot of times it's the question, why? Why, God? Why why is this happening? Why me? Why these circumstances? Why have you created me this way? Why have you put me in this this situation? Um, And I suspect most of us sometimes may find ourselves too busy to have too many questions rattling around. Or maybe we are we create ourselves to be busy so that the questions don't rattle around too much. I I I have these questions, so my my coping mechanism is to get busy. Is that true with any of you? But the questions still remain. Why? So we in our rat race of life, sometimes we, we find ourselves not having the, the time or energy to even think about the rat race, the craziness of life, the pain, the circumstances. We, we find ourselves waking up, getting up in the morning, hit, maybe hitting the, the snooze one, two, three times because you've calculated how many times you can hit the snooze. You, you finally get yourself up, out. You, you eat breakfast. If you're a breakfast eater, you come home. You pay the bills. You get up the next day, and it goes on and on and on. The cycle never seems to end. And if we have any spare time, we, we find ourselves with that spare time doing a little bit of recreation for ourselves. But then again, what happens? Labor Day is over, and we're back to work. Sometimes we just don't take time to really think and meditate on, ruminate on the the questions of why until something happens, right? Until something happens. We lose our job. A parent dies. a, A child gets sick. A friend gets cancer, a relationship is broken, and everything slows down and we start to just mull over the questions. We may wonder about things like, what what is the purpose of life? Why am I here? Why am I created? What what is this whole thing about the... If God is so good, what do we do with the question of evil in our world? Why is it that the wealthy seem to prosper. We, we ask these questions in our heads and we wonder, does anyone else have these same questions? Thanks be to God. In God's Word, He has given us the Psalms. In our, our series, we, we ask questions like, God, why do you hide yourself? Where are you in these times? Why have you forsaken me? And this is the beauty of the book of Psalms. They are written out of real life situations expressing deep and sometimes raw kind of human emotions. Why? And they start putting into words the things that we we don't 
we, we know that we feel, but we don't know quite how to express them. And the beautiful thing is, this morning, we are going to be looking at Psalm 39, and we are going to be asking the question that I think is another one of those misunderstood phrases, coffee cup kind of phrases. How do we number our days? So let's look at Psalm 39. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear these words. I said, I will guard my ways, that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so that so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in You. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is You who have done it. Remove Your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of Your hand. When You discipline a man with rebuke for sin, You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. For you do not, for, hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a soul, sojourner with you, a guest like my father's. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So it's interesting, and I did not read it at the very beginning. If you notice, there's kind of a, a little bit of a note at the, the, the very top. It says what? To the choir master. So it, it's, it's, a, it's part of the inspired text. The choir master was one of the chief musicians that was appointed by David to lead public worship. He, he was the, the Zach of the Psalms. He had a job to, to carry out, to, to, to lead the people in musical worship. So this is kind of a, a song that David wrote for the choir director, the musician, the director of worship to lead God's people in singing. This isn't the first song that I would personally pick for a congregation to be singing because sometimes it feels like in these words, and this is, this is part of the, 
the Psalter hymnal that Israel would sing. This does not feel like, man, this is a, an upbeat music with a lot of pep and zest. It, it, in fact, it feels like one of those where it should be written in a minor key, right? It feels weighty. But it was used in corporate worship. Maybe the choir director used a minor key, something melancholy, as they poured out their souls together in music before the Lord. So I want you to remember, as we are going through this, that this is actually a song that the people of God would sing, <coughs> sing together. Because the people of God struggled like David. And the people of God also struggle like David. So there's something in here that was bothering David. It's kind of hard to put our, our finger exactly on what was going on in his heart and mind, but it was eating away at him. It, it, he calls it in verse 2 his, his distress, or in another version, his sorrow, or in another version, his anguish. So this word literally means pain. And this pain can either be a physical kind of pain or it can be a mental kind of pain. So something was deeply hurting David in his core, in his heart of hearts, inside. It was kind of like briars just kind of clawing away at his soul. And yet the first thing that David said in this psalm was, I will guard, I will kind of put this muzzle on my mouth. I will guard what comes out of my mouth because I, I don't want to sin against God in how I complain towards God with people who are potentially wicked. He wants to be careful how he verbalizes his internal struggle because as one commentator said, his feelings were at this moment running high enough to be taken for disloyalty if he vented them in the wrong company. His struggle was so great, he couldn't speak it without the, the threat of being misunderstood. Have you ever had that kind of a pain? Where if people really heard what was going on in your heart, you would be, they'd be going, whoa, 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 whoa. You, you don't talk like that about God. And that is what David is feeling. So, David, at the, in the first few verses, he says he, he is going to make a commitment not to voice his distress because evil people around him might misconstrue his questions or his, his struggles. In, in my Bible, i really artistic here, but I, I just drew this picture of a, of a little thermometer, right? And you can see it, as, as, or you can hear it as the psalm goes on that the temperature is rising. The pressure is coming on stronger and stronger and stronger. And finally, what happens? Verse 3. My heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned. Then, I spoke with my tongue. It kind of raises the question, 
can't we just let God know how we're feeling? Can't we just let it out? Paul, I kind of thought that was maybe the point of the series. How do we speak with God and with these tough questions of life? Yes, we can. God can handle any and all of our outbursts, all of our emotions, but others may not be able to handle it. And particularly those who are wicked, who are predisposed to thinking negatively about God in the first place. So the psalmist does put a muzzle on his mouth while he is around those people so he does not become a stumbling block against those. So there is a place, my friends, for holding our tongue. I know some of you think that you can just let it go whenever you want to, but sometimes there is a time and a place that we have got to consider. Is this an appropriate time to allow my heart to vent? Yet the fire burned and the questions did not go away. The distress was, was getting worse and the pain in the Hebrew is, uh, the pain, the word pain here in the Hebrew is excited. So in other words, not like excited, like woohoo, but like it got excited. It got, it got agitated more and more. And he couldn't hold it long, any longer. But notice how he does it in a careful way of letting loose. So that he neither causes others to stumble or profane the name of God. There's a difference, my friends, between complaining to God and complaining against God. And he goes on to explain what is the anguish going on here in verses 4 through 11. What, what is bothering David so much in these verses? It's actually been difficult kind of for me to sort out. There's not really a... Uh, sometimes in the, the headings at the very beginning of a psalm, it kind of says when David was in this desert or when this was taking place. It doesn't give us that. So it, it doesn't... It's not clear. But as we walk through this psalm, we can see some of his struggles. And so we're going to look at the issues that are really kind of bothering David at his heart of heart, so that we can get to the heart of this psalm and hear what God wants to teach us. I see three kind of themes that David uh, is intertwining in these verses. Here's the first one. He is seeing that life is so fragile. You see this in, starting in verse 4. He, he says, Lord, show me the measure of my day. He's not complaining. He's asking, would you instruct me? Would you teach me? Would you help me to grow in wisdom? David asked God, let me know, the end, know my end. Literally, when I cease when, and the limit of my days, he, he's talking uh, about his death. And he's not asking God to, hey God, would you let me know when I'm going to die? You know, how many, how many more days do I have to go? He, he, he's saying, show me how insignificant and how frail I really am. And this is kind of a countercultural thing for our world, isn't it? Our world says, you need to be you. You know, let, let's, you shine like the stars. Show the world how great you are. And David is saying, show me how frail I am. 
Show me how needy I am. He's literally saying, let me know how lacking I am. My life as non-existence before you. I want to see my days, he says, from your perspective, God. I want to see what I look like before you. What, What do I look like compared to you, compared to eternity? Because I want to understand how small I am. Not how great I am. And look at the words and the images that David uses to describe this life. It is fleeting. This life is fleeting. It is a few handbreadths as nothing. It's a shadow. It is, and then back in verse 5, it is just a mere breath. How many breaths have you even taken here in this gathering and you haven't even counted them? And that is what he is saying. Your life is just a, a mere breath. This is an important word. The the Hebrew word that David uses is the same word that his son Solomon uses to choose for the theme of his book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity. 73 times. And it is translated vanity. It is meaningless. It is a vapor. Our life is fleeting. His point is that we live for a very short time But nothing that we do really lasts. And it's all kind of washed away like the footprints on a seashore. It vanishes. So that when it's done, you don't even, people doesn't, history doesn't really remember that you've even been there. And if we think about that very long, it can leave you in a very empty, despondent kind of place. Like, why? What are we even accomplishing here? If that's true of me, what's the purpose of this life? Life is fragile. And times it feels like there's no real substance. And we don't like to think that way. Some of you would much rather me come up here and pat you on the butt, give you a hug, and send you on your way with a great big kiss. And saying, you're great. You're wonderful. And life seems, in reality, terribly long from our perspective. Like when you have toddlers who never seem to be quite ready for potty training. It feels like an eternity. I see Abby going, yeah. Or the teenagers who are Stretching out their wings and knocking seems like everything over as they are stretching out their wings. Some of us are going, yeah, when is it ever going to end? Or when you go through chemo and you just want to go home. And yet it's important for us at times to kind of almost extricate ourselves from the rat race of life. If, if, if life is whizzing by or, or from the marathon, if life is just dragging and just kind of look at it and look like an astronaut looks at the planet Earth from a distance to get a proper perspective. And that's what David is asking. David is saying, Lord, kind of give me a perspective. Help me to understand from your perspective how to measure my days. Give me your perspective on how short my life is. Help me to consider what a serious thing it is to die and how best 
Lord, how best in my short and fleeting handbreadth of a life, how to live my life before my final day. The emperors of Constantinople on their inauguration day had a, would have a mason come and show them several marble stones and gave them and asked them to choose one of those stones to make it ready for their gravestones on their inauguration day. Can you imagine that? Even for our, our president today <laughs> to say, hey, before I take this oath or on my day that I take my oath, um, I, I need uh, somebody from the cemetery to come on out and choose for me a gravestone to help me remember I too am coming to dust. That's, that's even uh, why Joseph Arimathea, it said, had his, stone, his tomb in his garden. It was kind of to check the pleasures of this life and remember dust to dust, ashes to ashes. I too am going to die. So instead of us getting way too caught up in the illusion of our own kind of significance and importance in this world, Scripture is full, full, chuck full, and it's kind of scary, of all the references to show how short-lived our life is. Listen to these. Listen to this list. First Chronicles, our life is described as a shadow. In Job, houses of clay. In Job, again, a weaver's shuttle. Uh, in Job, again, as a runner. We're, we're, we're a passing breeze in the Psalms. We are, uh, we're also described in the Psalms as a dream, as something that is swept away. Uh, we are soon gone and we will fly away. Uh, we are a breath, a passing shadow. Ecclesiastes says that we are like dust. Anybody want to break out into a song? We are like dust in the wind. Thank you. We'll, we'll take auditions for the music team later. Isaiah says we are like a leaf. We are, James says we are like a wild flower. We are like midst, mist. First Peter says we are like grass. That is your life. Instead of us, some of us really want to say, no, my life is far more significant than that, right? There's this pushback. It's just saying, I am great. You don't know how wonderful I am. Scripture keeps bringing us back. God is trying to get us to think, to understand how short, how short our lives really are. And this is why after both times he calls man a breath. Did you notice that little Hebrew word that is in there? Selah. And that is basically a, a, a musical term that just says there is a, a pause, an interlude, a break for us to stop. Stop right here in your tracks and think about that. Stop. So we are made in God's image to do something that will last, but what might it be? So he says, first, listen, you, your, your life is extremely fragile. And so if our life is so fragile, what do we do? But he doesn't just say that your life is fragile. He also goes and points out in verse 6 and verse 11 that your, your money is just even fleeting. What does the world say about money? 
Oscar Wilde says, when I was young, I thought that money was the most important thing in my life. Now that I am, I am old, I know that it is. It kind of says something about our world, right? Uh, or Groucho Marx. Money frees you from doing things you dislike. Since I dislike nearly everything, money is handy. Right? If I just had enough money, that's kind of honestly the theme of our life. If I just had enough money, I, I won't have to do these things. I won't have to go to work. I won't have to pay these bills. I won't have to deal with these people. I just need to move up the ladder. What happens when you go up the ladder? More problems, right? Uh, and so, verse 6 in the NIV says this. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. <laughs> that, that is so true. It, did you notice the word in vain again? Or for nothing? It's our Ecclesiastes word, vanity. It's a remarkable picture, ridiculously, really, that phantoms going to and fro, uh, gathering up mist. Everything that they do, all they do is collect. And what are they collecting? They are collecting vapor. Everything. It would be like going into your backyard with uh, one of those empty jewel plastic bags when it's a foggy morning trying to collect up all the vapor or the mist or the fog out in the backyard and looking in it to see what you found nothing it's gone no sooner than you collect it so you work at it you run around and you have nothing to show for it, nothing of substance when you're ultimately done and even if you do collect what seems to be like a, a, a good nest egg, you're not going to be able to even take it with you when you die anyway. You don't know for sure who is going to get it after you. You may have a will, but you don't know how that's going to be used. So what is the point? Money is like water. You can't even hold it in your hands. It seems to just kind of slip through your fingers. Proverbs 23 says this, Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. It feels like my paycheck sometimes. You look at it, and it's gone. For surely they will sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Uh, and we're going back to work on Tuesday. Right? And David goes on to say in verse 11, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. You consume their wealth like a moth, says the NIV. What do moths do? I don't know if anybody else has ever had this problem or growing up dealing with moths, growing up in a farmhouse. Man, uh, my grandmothers had a particular smell to them. And that particular smell was just not cheap, bad perfume. It was the smell of mothballs. Oh, mothballs. You'd walk into your grandmother's bedroom and there'd be this kind of weird, odd smell. And she would take that weird, odd smell even to church because it'd be on her clothes. And these mothballs would be in these closets to keep moth larvae out. And David is saying, as you accumulate wealth, moth larvae are just being laid 
right there in your wealth. And what do they do? They are going to eat it up and they are going to destroy it. And he thinks about this. And David is deeply troubled in his soul. And this guy is the king of Israel. He knows that this money in the storehouses are are going to be consumed. And all that he has worked for, all that he has accomplished, all that he's accumulated for him, it was a lot of money. It is all going to be eaten up like a moth and disappear. Our lives are fragile. Our money is fragile. Our lives are too short of a time and of guarantees to busy ourselves with piling up things. Our lives, our monies are here for a moment and then they are gone. But he points out kind of a third theme that is going on. Not only is sin, are our lives fragile and our money is fleeting, but sin, in verses 7 through 11, he points out that sin is just absolutely foolish. It's just not that these things are fleeting, that there's this third strand to this cord that is really, I think, aggravating his soul. There's something more personal going on here. He says in verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. This is, I see as the turning point in the psalm. In view of this futility, what do I hope for? There's only one prospect. God, my hope is in you. Life is fleeting. The money is going to be gone. My only hope is you. He realizes that if he is going to make anything solid, anything lasting of his life, he must connect with his creator who is forever and who cannot be shaken and who never changes, will never fade. He is the same yesterday as he is today as he is for tomorrow. God who is solid, he is not a shadow, who is eternal, he he is not temporal, who has real substance and not like a phantom. The solution to life being so fragile and money being so fleeting is to enter into a personal relationship with the one who made and rules over all things. And yet it is this relationship that has created a dilemma for him. Because this eternal being is not just some force or principle out there, he is very much a person. God is a person, not just a force or a principle. One who has a moral core to him. There is where the rub really comes. David has not always followed the principles, the laws laid down by the by the Creator Himself. He speaks of His transgressions, of His iniquities, the things that He has done wrong back in verse 8, right? This is where the things really get messed up. Because that's what sin does. We know, according to Romans, that the wages of sin is death. But the good news is that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Something that actually lasts forever, right? We have life in Christ. This is the one thing that is solid that will carry me through hell and high water. 
When I die, it is the one and only thing that will carry me on into eternity. And this is a beautiful thing. But what does it mean that your ongoing sin no longer results in death? Look at David's experience as a child of God. In verse 9, it is you who have done it. In verse 10, remove your stroke, O God, from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. This is strong language. This is strong language. He, he used the same word, stroke, in 38 uh, verse 11 for wounds. It's the same word used in 2 Samuel 17, 7, 2 Samuel 7, 14 for flogging. Or it's the exact same word used for the plagues in Exodus to mean God using physical means bodily pain to get through to somebody it is hard it hurts but in David's case it is not death it is discipline your your blows have landed heavily on me you have consumed my wealth I am spent, I'm at the end of my rope, and I don't know if I can take it anymore. That is what David is saying. David acknowledged that it was God who had struck him, who had disciplined him. And that is why in verse 9 he says, I am mute, I am not going to open my mouth, for you have done this thing to me. Because the distress is God's doing. It is better not to argue with Him lest one sins and increases foolish accusations, right? Any man will find himself an unequal match for the Almighty God. God is not one to be messed with. So David realizes his place. That God could have cast him onto a bed of flames for his sin instead of a bed of sickness. So he holds his tongue. But what David didn't fully understand was God's purpose in discipline. Parents, would you agree? Sometimes our kids just don't understand what is the purpose behind discipline. There's yelling and screaming and stomping and throwing fits in the corner if you use a timeout chair. They don't understand that my heart towards you is love and I want you to return back to me. And David, he wasn't able to say in essence, I I love this. But he was saying, you're breaking me. I can't handle it anymore. He feels the same way that Moses did in Psalm 90. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. I feel it. But David did want God to, God's blows to stop. So his cry in this psalm is for God to deliver him. Deliver him from his sins. The things that were making 
Even others laugh at Him. The reality is, that should be all of our cries. When we feel God's hand upon us, we don't look for a quick escape. We should be saying, God, my sin is the reason that I'm experiencing this. I confess that. I repent of my sins. Would you please remove your hand from me? This is why sin is so foolish. It either brings death if we are not a child of God or discipline if we are. Because when we sin as children, we are telling God in effect that we are not mature. That we have not learned to distinguish right from wrong. That we are still living, living our toddler-like lives in front of Him. That we still have a lot of growing up to do. And because He loves us, He will not, God as our loving Father, will not allow us to stay there. So we're beaten with the rod of our own making but one which is administered for our good. So what do we do with this distress and this, this pain? There's an exchange that, that happens. When we, we've been broken by the discipline of God and realize the frailty of our lives, we ultimately find ourselves coming to God in prayer. Or we should find ourselves coming to God in prayer. We exchange our anxiety for understanding, our tiny perspective for wisdom. We exchange it and just say, Lord, I'm coming to You. And that's what David did. He started the process in verse 7, saying, My hope, God, is in You. What a beautiful profession of faith. My hope is in You. I used to put my hope in riches. I used to put my hope in honor. I used to put my hope in my spouse. I used to put my hope in this. You fill in the blank. Until God, you taught me otherwise. Through the school of hard knocks. And now my hope is only in you. And he carries this prayer on in verse 12, and ask God to give ear to his cry and not to hold his peace at his tears. Or the NIV says, not to be deaf to my weeping. He's just saying, God, would you just hear me? Psalm 62 says, trust in him at all times, O peoples. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is your refuge. He is banking on the love of God to listen to his tears. To help him to make sense of this life that is happening to him. And to get a God-sized perspective on the limitations of this life. But he did not ask God to change the circumstances of his life. Did you pick that up? But that he would have, a God's, have God's perspective on those circumstances and to learn from those circumstances. And even in his concluding prayer, there's a sense that he's still not at peace. Because he says, I am but a sojourner 
like my father's, passing through this life. He makes a, sometimes he kind of gives this picture of that, I still feel like I'm a, a guest just passing through and not a son. But then he makes a strange request in the final verse to look away from him that he may smile once more. And it's ironic that the God to whom he is turning for solace is the very God who has just dealt with him harshly, that he felt it would be better if God just didn't pay attention to him anymore. So he asked God, just take away your disciplining gaze away from you. He is our only hope, and yet his focus on us just feels like it is consuming. So you may be wondering from verse 13, if David just didn't know if, am I even going to heaven? But this is just the anguish and the pain that he is feeling in reality. He knows in his heart of hearts that God will not abandon his soul in the grave. That when he awakens, he will be satisfied by seeing God's face. So what do we, there's always this struggle that I have in preaching. Here's your three points of application. Right? Because you're all going, so what do I do with this? Because this is a depressing song to be singing and probably even to be preaching about. What do I do with this? So here's a couple things that I do want to pass on to you. Because life is so frail, and because time is so short, my friends, we do need to evaluate our schedules. We need to pray David's prayer, Lord, show me the measure of my days. And what, what uh, Moses prayed in Psalm 9, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom what does it mean to number our days it, it doesn't just mean to click them off with a clicker and just say okay i'm getting closer oh, oh, two more days that's not what he's saying here the question is not how many it is a question of what am i doing with these days it's doing what paul challenges us to do in ephesians 5 be careful then how you live not as unwise but as wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Don't waste your life. How are you using your life? Seriously, how are you using your life? Look at the rat race of your life. See where your time is going. I'd suggest that if the usage of your time revolves around the provision of your needs and the needs of your family, you may quite very well be falling short of how God wants you to use your time. And husbands, I, I want to be clear to you. Pro providing for your family is an important task. But if that becomes the idol of your life, you need to repent today. God is saying, listen, make the most out of every opportunity. Make the most. There, there must be space, my friends, for service. There must be space for time. I, I gave you in the realm, uh, 
a Charles Spurgeon uh, sermon for you to read about this whole thing of meditating on Scripture. Some of us want to be spiritual giants. We want to grow and be known before the Lord as one who loves Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But yet we spend no time, no time. We wait for Sunday to be fed again. And he, David has said, man, you need to learn how to count your days. Do something of eternal worth. I'll move on to the next one. Because money is so fleeting, we need to invest it wisely. Now, if the first thing that you are thinking about when I say that is, man, I need to find a higher performing stock or put my money in a CD that yields a little bit more than the 0.0001% of a savings account, you've missed the point. No matter how much interest you earn in an earthly bank or how high your dividends are, it is still just Confederate money. It's still just money. Even if it doesn't sprout wings, it will soon, it's soon going to be worth nothing at all when your head hits the grave in the coffin. So what do you do with it? You send it on ahead. That, of course, is exactly what Jesus told his followers in Matthew chapter uh, 6. Do not store your, up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... Oh, come on, you've got you to know how, how it ends. Because some of you don't want to say it because it's convicting. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Invest in the bank of heaven, if you will. Where your treasures will last for eternity. Jesus said, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Man, use it. Use your resources for the purposes of ministry. This is not uh, a call for tithes and offerings, although this is God's plan A for the ministry within His world. It is also use your resources to reach your friends and your families with the Gospel. Be, be pros at hospitality. Invite people into your life. Buy them food. Throw parties. Invite them in and share the Gospel. Not only that, but you don't want to get caught up just holding the bag at the end. Listen to what God says through James. Now listen, you rich people. And just so you know, you all are rich according to worldly standards. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. 
My friends, money is fleeting. Invest it wisely. And lastly, because sin is foolish. Hear this. And God's discipline is hard. My friends, repent of your sins. Do we understand that some of the challenges in our lives may be the disciplining hand of our loving Father? Do you understand that? It might be a financial struggle where God has been consuming your wealth like a, like a moth. My friends, it, it might be something physical like David describes in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Not every hardship in life, hear this, not every hardship in life is God's discipline, but for the child of God, it might be. And until we recognize it as such, we will never be ready to learn from it. And some of you are either caught in a trap of some habitual sin, or you are playing very very near to the edge of a cliff. And the reason I know is because I am just a human like you. Habitual sins. Playing close to danger. Feeling the heat of sin, but maybe not totally partaking in it. Satan is prowling around like a roaring liar waiting for someone to devour and he's got some of you. You can't seem to shake it. And maybe God has struck you with a blow and you have felt the hostility of His hand. And God is calling you. He said, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. As a loving father who disciplines his children, does not shut the door and just say, serves you right. He disciplines and says, Come to me, for I am better than what this world offers you. Maybe we need to be like Hosea, who says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us. But He will bind up our wounds. Or Psalm 32, Blessed is He whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Thank God, right? And whose spirit, in whose, in whose spirit is no deceit. My friends, He will Deliver us from our sins. And He will give us wisdom to invest our time and our money wisely. John Piper said this, I thought of coming to my old age and saying through tears, I've wasted it. I've wasted it was fearful was a fear
fearful and horrible thought to me. Is it? At the, are, do you feel that? I've wasted. I've wasted precious time. I've wasted precious resources. I've allowed sin to consume my time, my, my body, my heart. I've wasted this life. C.T. Studd wrote this. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will be fleeting hours be done. Then, in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life The still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding my selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would soon tempt me sore, when Satan would give a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Father, give me, Father, a purposeful deep In joy or in sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let my love with fervor burn from And from the world, now let me turn, living for Thee and Thee alone, bringing Thee pleasure on Thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now let me say, Thy will be done. And when at last I hear Thy call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Brothers and sisters, 
may God show through His Word what it means to measure our days. And may we grow in this every day. Let's pray.